All right. I got some questions for you guys. I want to see how well you can articulate different chapters in your Bible. There are certain chapters that we have kind of come to know as um, being defined by certain things. So if we were to look for the love chapter, where would we go? 1 Corinthians 13. Alright. What about the chapter that talks about the armor of God? Ephesians 6. The faith chapter. Hebrews 11. Um, what about the Abrahamic covenant? <laughs> You just got to blurt it out. <laughs> Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Uh-huh. Old or New Testament? <laughs> sure. Either one. Sure. <laughs> Genesis. All right. We're, we're in Genesis. 12. All right. 15. 12. 15. Get a little bit in 22, maybe. What about the Davidic covenant? Second right. Samuel 7, Psalm 89. All right. Boo. Boo. <laughs> Ten Commandments. All right. What about the Deuteronomy one? After going through Deuteronomy. Well, now I'm asking for two. <laughs> Five. All right. Uh, what's something harder for Jeremy? Uh, 144,000. Revelation 7. Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20. 19. You sure? 19. 19. 19. 19. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's probably about it. Uh, um, what about Paul defending his apostleship? Galatians 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 11. What about. Um, I don't know if it's defending his apostleship, but talking about his pedigree. Philippians 3. Philippians 3. Alright, let's see how well we're split up. Why don't you men look up Philippians 3 and you women look up 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to check out Paul's pedigree, his defending of his apostleship. Jeremy's going to look up Galatians 1 and 2. By himself, yep. Second <laughs> Corinthians 11. Uh, it's in the 20s somewhere, I think. And then Philippians 3, it'll be the first seven or eight verses, somewhere in there. I don't do myself a whole lot of room up So I want you guys to get there and then um, let me know what you guys find out about Paul and his pedigree, about his apostleship, his um, credentials. Who is Paul historically, the things that he's done, um, the things that he would put in a resume to show people about who he is. Um, yeah, he is a chief of center, but we're going to leave that one out because if he were looking to get a job... Not in a church. He probably wouldn't include that one. What else would he want to include positively in a resume? 
Not that? I think that's good. He speaks insane. <laughs> yeah, probably won't want to include that either. So a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay, tribe of Benjamin. <clears throat> what do you find in there in Galatians 1 and 2, Jeremy? About what? About Paul's uh, credentials. Galatians 1 and 2 is better for apostleships, not in the pedigree. Okay. But uh, anything that really give a ton of credentials about his background, like his in Philippians 3, other than he's telling a story about getting saved and becoming an apostle. Okay. So, an apostle at least, right? Well, yeah, he says from the beginning, not he's an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's important. Apostle through Jesus. Anything else you guys are finding in Philippians or 2 Corinthians 11? He's the persecutor of the church. So he was he was zealous, right? As to zeal, he persecuted the church. That's the kind of passion that he had even before he came to Christ. This just talks about what happened to him. Like he was in prison, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. Why was he in prison? Why was he beaten and shipwrecked? Knowledgeable. Okay. Knowledgeable. I don't know how to spell that. <laughs> All right. Now, with those things kind of in our mind, even the being beaten and shipwrecked and uh, things that we might not see as positive, where is he at in this point of the narrative in Acts chapter 27? What's been going on since Acts chapter 21? What is his the circumstances that he finds himself in right now? Alright, so he's a prisoner. How long did he spend in prison? Do we remember? Two years. Two years under, uh, under Felix, right? And then Festus came in. He acted pretty quick, getting things going. He had that meeting with Agrippa and then um, sent him from Caesarea. Um, and he's on his way to Rome. That's where we're going to be picking up in 27. Anything else to add about where he's at right now? What does it mean that he's a prisoner? How does that relate to his um, his position amongst other men, his status, the the power that he has? What he's in right now, as far as like a real prison? Um, just the the influence and the power that he's able to have as a prisoner, as opposed to a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, somebody who is uh, well esteemed amongst the religious elite. As a prisoner, he gets to witness to governors and kings and authorities. Yeah, God didn't leave him without opportunity, even though he was a prisoner. But he didn't have innately the same position, the same 
um, prestige that he had before when he was a Pharisee of Pharisee, um, when he was able to, to travel about freely, when he had the help and support of other Christians and other churches. And so I just want us to kind of get in that mindset that here in Acts 27, he's kind of on the, the lower end of the totem pole. He's not the big shot in charge anymore. He's not the apostle who is the church planter, who's sending out Titus and Timothy and um, all these other people that he's kind of been manipulating and, and moving before to establish churches. That's not the position that he finds himself in here in Acts 27. So I just want us to keep that in mind as we go throughout this chapter. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Acts 27. And I'm going to read the first several verses. Acts 27. And when it was decided... Well, before we do that, um, just remember, last several chapters, so starting in chapter 21, is when he got uh, thrown into prison in Jerusalem. He moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Spent two years in Caesarea under Felix. And then... um, we talked about how he appealed to Caesar in chapter 25. Chapter 26, he actually presented his case before uh, King Agrippa and Festus. And they came to the conclusion that had he not appealed to Caesar, he would have been let free. And so they had a, a favorable opinion of Paul, um, at least more so than Felix. Remember, Felix was kind of yanking his chain and he'd call him in sometimes, but he was just looking for bribes. So he was in a a pretty favorable position at the end of 26, but he was on his way to Rome, having appealed to Caesar. So starting in 27 says, And it was decided that we should sail to Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion. Remember, a centurion is a soldier who's over a 100 other soldiers. A centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship of a... Um, I practiced how I was going to say this too. <laughs> Adramidian, um, we sent, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So Paul is on his way to Rome, and who is with him? <clears throat> say it again, Ellie, I didn't hear you. Oh, just other yeah, other prisoners were among him. Who specifically? Aristarchus, right? Aristarchus, we saw a little bit back in chapter 19. So in chapter 19, verse 29, we just read that he was a a Macedonian who was traveling with Paul through Ephesus. And he was actually one of the people who was taken and uh, beaten and persecuted in Ephesus when Paul stayed back and he wasn't part of the, the persecution that went on there. But Aristarchus was. And who else is with Paul here in chapter 27? Luke. Luke was with him back in chapter 21. We last saw him in 21:18, And then Paul entered into this whole stage of his life where he's imprisoned. Again, first in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea. And so Paul is, or yeah, Paul isn't being accompanied by Luke at that point. And surely Luke stuck around in Caesarea and was still ministering to him in some respect. Remember, Felix granted him the ability and the freedom to have people come and and visit him while he was in prison. But here we see that the the language changes from um, second person to first person plural again. So he says in verse 1, it was decided that we should sell to Italy. So we have Luke, 
Paul, some other prisoners, and Aristarchus, and they are headed to Rome. I tried to draw my map up here. Somebody asked if something was a football. Somebody else said, Rome isn't that far south, is it? Or north. But if you don't look at your Bible for comparison, then it looks great. And (laughs) if you have a map in your Bible, then look at that instead. Yeah, certainly not to scale. But um, we know that he had left Jerusalem a couple years ago, went to Caesarea, that's about 60 miles away. Um, Let's see. So verse 2, so entering a ship of the Adramidian, that's just talking about the where the ship was made and um, the, the construction of it took place in, in that city, Adramidian. Um, so he entered into that ship and put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. So they wanted to come up here and sail along the coast. This kind of ship that he was in wasn't a, a big seafaring vessel. Um, it wasn't able to take on the, the waves in the sea, so it wanted to stay close to the shores. Yes, Diana? So he'd already been in prison for two years, or he's going to be in prison for two years? He had been in prison under Felix okay, for so two years in chapter 24. Yet yeah, now he's going to appeal to Caesar. And so um, probably next week, Mark, we'll see how long this goes. At some point, we'll look at chapter 28, and that's where he appeals to Caesar. Um, but he's, they're wanting to stay close to the shoreline because this boat isn't able to um, go straight across. So if you're headed from Caesarea to Rome, it'd be most simple to just take a, a straight across um, path right there. But that's not the way they end up going. Verse 3 says, And the next day we landed at Sidon. So Sidon's just a little bit up here. About 70 miles away from Caesarea. So one day um, after leaving, they landed in Sidon. And Julius, remember, he's the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and to receive care. Now, it might be pretty simple for us to just breeze over that, but remember back through what we are, are what we have already learned in Acts and the the punishment that is put on somebody who loses a prisoner or who doesn't uh, properly take care of a prisoner. They receive the same punishment that the prisoner themselves would have received. That's why in Acts 16, the the soldier who thinks he lost all these, these captive prisoners takes out his sword to kill himself because he realizes, I've, I've messed up and I'm going to be killed myself. And so if... Julius was to lose track of Paul, then certainly he'd be in quite a bit of trouble himself. And it was <clears throat> only one day before that they had left Caesarea. And so we don't have any indication that Paul was super buddy-buddy with this guy. A uh, couple of possibilities is that Festus, remember, who was pretty favorable of Paul, sent him out with Julius and said, take care of this guy. This guy's Good, he's trustworthy, he didn't really do anything wrong, so you you treat him kindly. Um, I wondered myself if Julius could be a Christian himself. But either way, I think Paul left an impression on him, either through Festus or through his personal relationship with Julius that he built over this one-day um, trip from Caesarea to Sidon. And Julius trusted him enough to say, okay, we'll go out and go go see your buddies, go see your friends. Um, let them take care of you. While 
while we're here inside him, which really seems pretty um, pretty unique to me that he would let him do that as a prisoner who's headed to Rome. Also, um, another point to note. Go ahead, Rex. Okay, I, just, I thought I read somewhere, too, that, that was, not only was that unusual because, you know, uh, Paul's position stuff, but typically it says that some of the uh, prisoners that were headed to Rome were going there to be executed. So, Yeah, yeah, he wasn't alone for sure. And again, he's not acting as a, a Pharisee of Pharisees right now. He's not in his um, position that he was used to as an apostle, giving orders and instructions to other people. He's a prisoner taking instructions, but yeah, he still finds himself with this unique freedom. And also for his friends to offer him aid is somewhat unique that his buddies would be willing to take in this prisoner and offer him aid, give him help. Um, had me thinking about our our friend in the faith up in Canada, right? And all the, the trouble he's going through um, with his Canadian government up there. And not only from the Canadian government, but other people are, are harping on James Coates. Even Christians themselves saying, oh, well, he should just obey the rules. He should listen to what the government tells him to. And so his own people in his own camp, so to speak, right? These believers are, are coming after him and, and persecuting him along with the, the government. And it would have been very easy for Paul's friends to do the same thing and say, oh, I'm not going to associate with him. He's He's been locked up for a couple of years. He's headed up to go talk to Caesar. I don't want to associate with him. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But yet they welcomed him in and they showed him hospitality and, and love. And so it's pretty unique that he would receive that privilege both from Julius and then that um, his his friends who are Christians, no doubt, uh, would show that same care for him. Thoughts up to verse 3? All right. Verse 4. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And so, again, instead of going straight across, they went up here and they went around Cyprus. They want to stay close to the coast and uh, the winds would be blocked there by going that way around the the north side of Cyprus. Verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Verse 6, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So this Alexandrian ship's a little bit bigger than what they've been sailing in before. Uh, You can look down in verse 37, maybe. Yeah, 37. And see that there are 276 people who are on this bigger ship. So um, they switch ships there in Myra. Um, verse 7. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Canidius, the wind was not permitting us to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And so... Again, this is not a scale, um, but coming up here a little bit and making their way around Crete. Verse 8, 
passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. And so they're in Fair Havens. They had a hard time getting there. Um, was something that says was done with much difficulty. And they get to a place where they can set up for a little bit, but it's not ideal as we'll figure out. Verse 9. Now when much time had been spent and selling was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So looking back at verse 9, he speaks of the danger that he perceives. Um, Well, verse 10 is where he says that he perceives danger. So verse 9 just says objectively that um, selling was now dangerous because the fast was already over. So the fast is referring to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And um, that took place, if this was in 59, then it would have taken place on October 5th. No matter what, it always takes place at the end of October or the end of September and the beginning of October. And um, that's important because it got really difficult to sail right around that time. They weren't permitted at all to sail from mid-November through March. That was like off-limits time for sailing. But from uh, mid-September to uh, mid-November, it was considered dangerous time to, to be sailing. And so we know that this was right in that time because the feast had already passed. So October 5th, it was already at least mid-October by the time this was taking place. And so that's why it's referenced here. And we know that it was dangerous for them to be sailing at this point in time. And then Paul warns them and uh, lets them know that it'd be dangerous to continue on. He says, we should just stay here in Crete, in Fair Haven. But they wanted to keep going a little bit farther and try to get uh, to the, the west side of Crete where they thought that it would be safer to, to dock their boat. We see that in verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion, um, again, the the one who's in charge of Paul and at least a hundred other people on the ship, well, maybe on the ship, but he is uh, a man of authority in this situation, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman or the captain and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. And by any means they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and the northwest, and winter there. So Paul gave him fair warning and said, Dude, I don't think we should be going. It's not safe. And in fact, you're going to put our lives in danger if we leave from here. Let's just stay here in Fairhaven. But the, the captain, the owner of the ship, and apparently the majority said, no, I think we can make it. Let's try to make it over here to, to Phoenix, which was apparently a more ideal place to, to dock the boat for winter. And it really wasn't that far from where they were. It was only 100 miles or so, and they thought, surely we can make it. And that's what the centurion decided to do. So it seems like the decision came down to him. He didn't take Paul's advice, but took the advice of the, the captain, the ownership and the majority, which from a worldly perspective seems to make sense, right? Because again, who is Paul at this point? He's just 
a prisoner. He's been a prisoner for a couple of years. He's a nobody. Um, he's some guy who was whining about wanting to see Caesar, really. Um, so that's where we're at. Verse 13. <clears throat> when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So they got a, a brief window of good weather and... They thought, all right, well, we're going to sit out. So several things are in play here. You have the, the captain, the owner, saying, yeah, let's do it. The majority were saying, let's do it. The weather seemed good. And so they decided to take off. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon, uh, or a, a northeasterly wind. So there would be a wind that would come in from the north, also a wind that would come in from the east, and it was really unpredictable as to where people were going to end up. They weren't able to navigate um, with the, the crosswinds coming in from the north and the east, and they just kind of spin into a little cyclone-type thing, this Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And so they were having a hard time getting caught in this weather, and instead of fighting against the weather, they just figured, okay, well, <laughs> we can't really do anything to fight this. We're just going to let go and and go wherever the wind takes us uh, verse 16 running under the shelter of an island called clotta we secured the skiff with difficulty the skiff is just like a little boat that they would launch off of there um what are those called nowadays like a little safety boat to get to shore what yeah skiff or there's another word for it yeah, I don't know. A smaller boat to get to safety. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with a little safety boat. That sounds cute, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think back to the Titanic and all the boats that they had on the side and what they called them. Lifeboat. Yes, thank you. Yeah, little, little boat thingy works too. Or lifeboat. Whatever you want. But... So apparently they had that out, and before it took on water, they wanted to bring it in and said that they secured the skiff with much difficulty. So uh, you got a, a bunch of strong men, how many? 276 men who had difficulty pulling in this little lifeboat. But they got it in. Number 17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and, feet, and fearing lest they should run aground, on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. So, I don't know what all this means particularly, but chapter 27, I guess, is famous for its nautical terms and the techniques that are used here. And there are all kinds of um, unredeemed men who have studied Acts 27 to glean all of the the wisdom from a, a salesman type perspective which is pretty cool because Luke, who's writing it, wasn't a salesman, right? He's just writing down faithfully what God has given him and what he's gone out and uh, investigated, and people are seeing the wisdom and, and gleaning it from it. Yeah. Only from the human responsibility side of things when it comes to writing scripture, Luke wasn't, um, you know, Luke being a physician, he had to really research and learn all these things because that wasn't his background. And so... Yeah. Uh, just shows Luke's investment in creating a good account. Yeah. Uh, that he had to do his homework. Yeah. yeah, and it's not the only place that has been coveted for Luke's 
um, attention to detail. Luke is um, always paying attention to detail, and people are often going to his work to try to figure out um, different geographical issues or um, archaeological digs. He has been uh, a great benefit to even the the unbelieving world, but especially to those of us who uh, realize that what he's doing is writing as he's being directed by the Holy Spirit. So, um, it talks about taking these cables to undergird the ship. Uh, The ships weren't built with bolts and screws and they didn't have any kind of uh, steel reinforcements or anything. And so they were pretty much just held together with dowels and pitch here and there. And so realizing that it was going to, uh, that the ship was going to be taking on a lot more force from the wind and the waves, they would take ropes and they'd wrap it around and somehow that would hold it together. Again, I don't know the parts of the ship or how it works, but they would take ropes and they knew how to to pull things together so that it would be um, more tightly fit and that it would be able to take on the waves a lot more securely. And then it said that um, they didn't want to run aground on the Sirtic sands. Um, so they're just looking out for a, a big sandbar, and they're worried about sandbars because in the region that they're getting ready to, to be in, there's all kinds of sandbars, and it's a, a ship graveyard where there are all kinds of ships, and it's taking down many a ship. And so they're mindful that they are in danger, and they're taking all the necessary precautions to keep them safe. And then at the end of 17, it says that they struck sail, and so were driven. Uh, Nasby says that they let down the sea anchor. Um, other translations, I think the ESV says that they lowered the gear. So I don't think that they had the kind of technology where they could downshift a boat. Um, but what it, it seems like they were doing is they let down some kind of anchor and they took down the sail that was guiding the ship. It was just one sail that was guiding the ship, not a, a bunch of sails. And the way that the sail was set up is that it would put all of the strain from the wind and the waves onto one particular part of the boat. And so they took down that sail. They probably dropped anchor. They were doing everything they could to keep themselves safe and uh, from going up onto these sandbars and crashing their ship, being shipwrecked. Uh, Another fact, we were looking briefly at 2 Corinthians 11, where he talked about being shipwrecked three times. And 2 Corinthians was written probably 55, 56 AD. This has taken place probably 59 AD. So he's already been shipwrecked three times before this. This isn't being included in one of his three times being shipwrecked. So this is his at least fourth time um, being in this kind of situation. So (laughs) good old Paul to always keep going and and never give up. Um, Verse 18. And because we were exceedingly... Yeah, because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, and the next day they lightened the ship. So uh, they're being thrown around, and look at the the wording that he uses there. He says that they lightened the ship the next day. Verse 19, on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. So I don't know if they were ordered to do that on the third day to to jump in and take part in throwing stuff over or if they started to realize the gravity of the situation. So the first day they were letting other people throw stuff over the ship and the next day they were 
jumping in and, and doing it, but there's a, a difference there between the the words that are used in 18 and 19. 19 uh, seems like Paul and Luke and Aristarchus are taking part in throwing the stuff off the ship so they could get the ship up onto the waves and um, keep it safer than being battered around lower in the waves. Verse 20. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest be on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred the disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so Paul here seems to just be saying, I told you so. You should have listened to me um, See, back when I was in Crete. That's biblical, right? Yeah, the, the Greek says neener, neener, neener. Um, no, it seems more likely that um, Paul isn't trying to, to rub it in necessarily. I mean, he, he certainly could have. Paul was a man just like we are. He struggled with sin just like we do. But it seems as if he was letting them know, I tried to tell you before, and you wanted to do what you thought was best in your eyes. You thought that you were wiser. You thought that you knew because the captain said, because the owner said, because you guys are salesmen. Salesmen? That's not the right word. (laughs) Uh, Sailors, right? (laughs) Who sail as men. (laughs) Um, And... And I'm just a prisoner, right? I don't know any better, but you guys didn't listen to me. He's saying, you should have listened to me, but you didn't. Now, please listen to me. Pay attention now. Learn from your mistake and listen, because I'm going to give you more direction. I want you to pay attention this time. Realize that if you had listened last time, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, 22, yes. So was Paul's, Paul's prophecy wrong? Is he a false prophet? Because he said there would be lots of life. Yeah, he said before in verse 10 that there would be loss of life, right? And then in verse 22, he said, well, if you listen to me now, we won't lose any life at all, but we'll just lose a ship. So what do you guys think? How do we reconcile verse 10 and verse 22? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's definitely uh, disagreement on how to reconcile these verses, and that's what a lot of people say that he was just speaking from experience, having already been shipwrecked three times, saying this is my perception. I don't think it's a good idea if we go out. We could actually lose our lives. And another understanding would be that um, they actually had already lost their lives, and that their lives had been spared and restored for Paul's sake. I I definitely lean towards the first understanding, but I think both could be possible. Yes, Rex? The in there was the vision Paul had between those scriptures where he had that vision that night. Yeah, it's later on verse 24. In 23 and 24. Other thoughts on verse 10 verses 22 that's definitely something that kind of pops off the page at us right does God give false prophecies 
No. <laughs> Jeremy's laughing because <laughs> he just had his debate where there are many people who would say, yes, God can give false prophecies. We would understand them to be heretics. So um, God does not give false prophecies. So we, we have a couple of different understandings. I know it's not the most satisfying answer, but at the end of the day, we know that God is good and God is sovereign. He doesn't give false prophecies. And he rescued Paul and his men because it was in his good pleasure to do so. Other thoughts on that? All right, let's look at that um, vision you were talking about, Rex. Verse 23 says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. So here we know without a doubt this is God speaking, right? So Paul isn't saying, I perceive, I think. Um, we, in our Sundays right now, we're looking at a section of Scripture where Paul says, this is what I say, but thus says the Lord. And it's very clear the uh, delineations between where God is speaking and where Paul is speaking. Not that Paul isn't speaking authoritatively, he's still an apostle, but he makes it clear that um, he is speaking rather than um, articulating what Jesus had said back in Matthew chapter 19. Um but here, in verses 23 and 24, he's saying, An angel from God came, and this is what he said to me. And he said, verse 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, that's not the first time we saw that, right? We saw back in chapter 23, verse 11, that Jesus came and he met with Paul and he said, You were my witness in Jerusalem. Did he say Jerusalem? I forgot where he said in 2311, but he said that you were uh, my witness for my sake. Um, following night, be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear, bear witness in Rome. So he already had confirmation from Jesus himself that he was going to Rome. Now he has an angel from the Lord just reaffirming that um, he was going to be going to Rome. And not only he, but all the people that were with him. And so, even though Paul had been told by God himself, he was now finding himself in a ship that was being smashed with all these waves and all this wind. And again, Paul was human, so it's very likely that he could have been shaken in his faith and not confident in what had happened years before. But now he's being approached again by an angel of the Lord and given this confidence that he was, in fact, going to make it to Caesar. Verse 25, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as he has told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So, good news and bad news, right? We're going to survive, but our ship is going to be completely ruined, and we have to run it aground. Um, so, here's kind of a, a testing moment for these men. Are they going to listen to this prisoner who had told them before and seems to have been proven right. Or are they going to listen to the captain or the, the owner of the ship, the commander, who has gotten them in this situation to begin with? Verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, that's 14 nights after they had left Fairhaven, on the other side of Crete, where Paul said we should stay there. After the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. 
Now, just a few verses before, we read that, um, where was that? Talking about how there was no, no stars. Verse 20, now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And they have, again, these waves and this wind. And they didn't have city lights like we do today. So the way that they, the only way that really really could have known that they were coming in close to this land was just hearing the waves crash up against rocks. Um, hearing just audibly that they were getting close to land. That must have been freaky to not be able to see, to not really know, but just kind of guessing that we're getting close to this land. Um, it says that they sensed that they were drawing close to land. Yeah, that's what happens in verse 28. So as a result of sensing that they were getting close to the land, uh, verse 28, like Rex was talking about, says they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And so, yeah, they would take a rope. A fathom was six feet. And so every six feet, they would tie off a knot on this rope and they'd drop it down. It had a big thing of lead on the bottom and they'd drop it down in the water and they'd count one knot, two knot, two, three, four fathoms, right? And they got down, they figured out, well, it's 20 fathoms deep. So 20 times six, it was 120 feet deep. Um, but again, they sensed that they were drawing near to the land before. Then they dropped down the fathom to, to test it. Um, and then when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again. So they went through the same process, dropped the, the rope with the lead on it down the water, and let's see how deep it is. And it came back to be 15 fathoms. So they're getting closer and closer to this land without being able to see, without being able to do anything. Verse 29, Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now I wonder how... How literal that is that they prayed for day to come. I have no doubt that, that Paul was literally praying to God, right? But these other men, were they just praying in the sense that somebody today might say, I'm just praying for something, somebody who's not religious, right? And just, I'm hoping, I, I really hope that land isn't right there. Or were they literally praying to God? Yeah, that's a, yeah, another, another layer of how crazy this is. They had no idea what time it was. Like, how, how long has it been pitch black and we've been fighting this? Because yeah. it's been one hour, it feels like four hours. Yep. That would not be a, a situation that you'd want to be in, right? Not a, a covetous situation. Other thoughts? How many fathoms are there in 10,000 leagues? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would help everybody if you could let us know. <laughs> Why don't you go home and figure that out and tell us next week? There you go. All right, verse 30 says, And as the sailors, not the salesmen, but the sailors, were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff, again the lifeboat, into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the from the prow, or the, what does your guys' version say? From the bow? Um, verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so he's pretty dogmatic there. They're getting ready to um, to bail the ship. 
But he's saying, no, they need to stay if they want to be saved. Then verse 32, apparently they finally decided, this guy knows what he's talking about. We're going to listen to him. It says, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. 14 days is a long time. What? That's a long We're going to swear. <laughs> no, it's an each. Oh. <laughs> so that would not be fun. 14 days is a long time ago without food. Um, people have suggested maybe they weren't eating because they didn't want to get seasick because they're just rocking back and forth and they don't want to add to the disaster that they're already going through and have just sick people and vomit all over the place. And they no doubt would have been super busy trying to keep this ship together. Remember, they had to take ropes and tie it all together to keep it from falling apart, uh, let down the sail, and uh, they're messing with the skiff, pulling it in, pulling it out, and there was a lot to do on the, the boat to keep things all stable. So for whatever reason, they hadn't eaten for 14 days, and Paul says, all right, it's time. We need to get some food. And maybe it took a little bit of time to actually prepare the food. Um, so Paul implored them, let's get the food. He himself took of it, and then they followed suit. 34, therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head, from the head of any of you. And when he had taken, when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat it. I read through this several times. I didn't think anything of it, but apparently some people thought that he was taking communion here, probably just because of the phrase he took bread and um, gave thanks for it. But I don't see that any way where Paul would partake of communion with a bunch of unbelievers who aren't part of a church on a boat. I think he's just eating food because they're taking it for nourishment, right? Not for kind of any kind of spiritual benefit, um, not remembrance of what the Lord has done. And he encouraged them to take it themselves for nourishment. 36. Then they were all encouraged and also took the food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. So again, we're reminded that Paul isn't by himself. He's got several other prisoners. He's got 276 people total on board with him. He has Luke and Aristarchus. And somebody had said in, in my study that um, it's not as likely that Luke and Aristarchus were prisoners with Paul, though they could have been. But it's more likely that they either sold themselves as slaves to Paul that they were enslaved to him, or um, they were just uh, joining him on this journey out of uh, friendship for him. Either way, they're, they're there, and you see the, the dedication and the love that they have for Paul, that um, they're, they're willing to jump on a ship and go that's hundreds of miles away from home, and it's not like they can just jump back on a plane and, and go back home. So there's some, some real love and dedication there from, from Paul's brothers. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Sounds fun, right? What? Any insight on the 276 persons on the ship versus 76? 
What do you mean verses 76? My, I have a footnote in my Bible in ESV. Oh. Some manuscripts say 76 or about 76. I don't know. I don't think I've ever looked that up. So. Nope. No idea. You can bring that back on Sunday with your 10,000 leagues. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing because there's a big difference, obviously, between 276 and 76. Yeah. Um, it's... So the ship that they were on, because of where they picked it up and the type of ship that it was, it was believed to be a grain ship. And so, and when they were throwing stuff off, they threw up a bunch of grain. And so it's likely that they were jumping on ship with these other businessmen who were trying to get food from um, this area down to um, Rome or wherever they're going. And so it's kind of a, a joint venture, and they're just ride along for the ride. Also one reason why they didn't want to stop here in Fairhaven, but they wanted to keep going because uh, to just sit down and stop for the whole winter, there's a lot of people who are losing a lot of money by not getting the product where it needs to go, not um, putting these hands that they have to better use. And um, yeah, they're paying people to just sit there all winter. So a lot of them were probably working that um, that whole venture of selling grain. Diana, you had something? I'll wait until later. Okay. Anyone else? I just thought it was just interesting with Paul as they as they began to start listening to Paul, he could have made statements that brought the attention to him, you know, because everything he's saying is coming true. And they could have kept making statements about I say this, I say that, but he's mm-hmm. constantly reverting all the attention to God. Yeah. God has spoken to us. God has given us the victory. God is going to save us. It's not. He's just Paul's a spokesman. It's, and the way I look at that verse, you were saying, we're breaking the bread. He prayed, he gave thanks to God. It's, mm-hmm. it's all, Paul is constantly focusing those men on the fact that God is central to my life and your life. And all throughout this, we see God's preservation of Paul and how he's he's carried him through this. Um, it could be easy for us to think, okay, well, Paul's just off in this prison for two years. He's forgotten about. Now he's getting on a ship for the fourth time. It's getting ready to go down and be shipwrecked. Uh, but all throughout this, you see God's preservation. It's not always pretty, right? It's not like the televangelists on TV would say, we'll just send in this amount of money and a prayer and and things will go great for you, right? It's not your best life now. Paul was in the midst of a terrible time being shipwrecked for the fourth time. He, we looked at 2 Corinthians 11, how he was stoned, how um, he was, what, three days in the deep and just all these terrible things. But God still preserved him, even though it was through pain and suffering. And all throughout the book of Acts, how many times have we seen him, you know, escape um, these situations, escape death at least, but not to say that he wasn't stoned, he wasn't beaten, he wasn't imprisoned. Paul went through all kinds of stuff. And not just Paul, but the other apostles as well. Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit as he was working and moving amongst the apostles. And so we have to remember that um, God is moving and working, and he is the one who has a gospel that needs to go forth, and he's just using willing, faithful men to get that job accomplished. All right, let's look at these last several verses. 
these guys seem to be like they're prisoners on the same ship with him. And it's just Paul's nature to, you know, evangelize to them. So. Yeah. But does it, it doesn't say anything about them really coming to faith. Nope, doesn't say that. But we, like you said, Paul by nature is an evangelist, right? He's going to share yeah. truth. And so I have a hard time seeing, not seeing Paul sharing his faith. Um, and for whatever reason, they submit to Paul. Paul took the lead in this whole situation. He wasn't the captain. He wasn't the owner. He was the lowly prisoner. But they submitted to Paul. And his leadership and his calm demeanor rose to the top when they weren't wanting to eat. They were worried about what they were going to do. Paul said, you know what? God has told me through an angel that we're all going to be okay. I'm going to make it to Caesar. You guys are coming with me. We're not going to lose any lives. The airship's going to be ruined, but that's okay. Not a hair on any of our heads is going to be touched. And so let's sit down. Let's eat some food. Let's give thanks to God because he's going to take care of us. And they submitted to Paul eventually, and his his leadership and his character rose to the top. And so no doubt he would have taken that as an opportunity to share his faith, but I bet he did so even before then. All right, verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they had planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, or again a, a sea or a sand, what is that? A sandbar. Uh, they ran the ship aground, and the prow or the bow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violent violence of the waves. And then this is kind of why I think verse 43 the centurion may have been saved if not before when he let paul go off on his little hiatus inside own um now i think maybe he was a christian i don't know it doesn't say but um it's a, a thought that i've had verse 42 said the soldiers plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape but the centurion wanting to save Paul. It doesn't say anything about him caring about the other prisoners, but his concern was for Paul. He wanted to save Paul. He kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to the land. And so regardless of what we we think about the the difference between verse 10 and verse, what was it, 22 or 24. Um, here we see that what God had explicitly said, that they would be saved except for the ship, has come to pass. That all of them had made it to the land. All 276 of these men were safe and sound on the shore. Even though people wanted to kill the prisoners, even though some of them clearly didn't know how to swim, even though they had the wind and the waves to fight against, they all made it safe to the land. We have two or three minutes for any thoughts or questions. You guys want to go on a cruise? No? <laughs> it's kind of hard to find a cruise right now. No? Yeah. 
after seeing what happened last year with people getting stuck with coronavirus for months, right? <laughs> three hours. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy? So looking at our schedule for the rest of this month, next Wednesday is St. Patrick's Day, which means something for all of us, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Mark will take us through the last chapter. Then the 24th, we may need to finish up chapter 28 on the 24th, or we might do something else on the 24th, we'll see. The 31st, then, of March is the fifth Wednesday, so we won't be meeting here that evening. The 7th of April is the first Wednesday of a quarter. That's where we're going to do another one of those hymn scenes like we did. So we'll get together and do requests from the hymnal. Right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we're going to, after that, will be the 14th, and we'll start our first Peter study. That's kind of an idea of where we're going. We're finishing up the Book of Acts. It's been coming up on two years. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. yeah, my notebook, I wrote down Acts PBC, which doesn't exist anymore, 19 slash 20. And it's now OHBC 21. So uh, that's how it goes. All right, so next week we'll be here for sure. Not sure what's going on two weeks from now. Three weeks from now, we're all meeting at Jeremy's for ice cream and pizza. In, in the street. In the street. <laughs> and then our hymn scene first of next month. And then first Peter. That's exciting stuff. All right. Miss There's Diana. approximately 3,038 fathoms in one week. <laughs> wow. wow. 10,000 leagues is a long way down. Yeah. yeah. It's like 30 million. Wow. Thanks. You're doing Jeremy's homework for him. What about his other answer? She's doing your job right now. Oh. (laughs) Was that in the text? 10,000 leagues? I don't remember. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the accuracy of it, for Luke's diligence and writing it down and that even the unbelieving world can see the benefit of your word. We pray that you would truly give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would use us in the lives of those who are lost, those who are foolishly saying in their heart that there is no God, who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that you would use our bold witness to speak truth into their life and that they would submit to you and bow the knee. God, I pray that um, you would just bless the the rest of this Acts study and and 1 Peter and the stuff we're getting ready to start with, the the kids and the youth. God, I thank you for this church, the way that you're moving here, the things that are going on. Help us to love you more and to desire to serve you more. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.